Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Burris. Now, our guest this week started his business with his wife in the kitchen in their home in Sydney, and today that product is stocked in four and a half thousand supermarkets, health food stores, and cafes across Australia. He sells 45,000 packets of this stuff every month. His name is Scott Tullock, and their business is called Farmer Joe. And he makes what he calls real fancy muesli. I'm gonna ask Scott about how his background in the food industry meant he was in a unique position to spot up-market food trends taking off nearly 10 years ago and how he jumped on the rising tide. That's a rising tide of craft breakfast, just like the rising tide in craft beer, like the rising tide in craft coffees. He has jumped on board a rising tide of craft breakfast cereal. This is an incredible story about how a chance encounter at a local food market right here in Sydney led to Scott supplying Qantas first and business class with his product, and that became an overnight success. So let's get into it. Scott Tollock, the Farmer Joe. Farmer Joe, welcome to The Mentor, mate. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Give us a bit of a sound of your accent. Come on. Well, I tried to get my wife to come because she is the real Farmer Joe, but she's too shy. Is, she, is her she, name Joe? She's Sally. Sally. She's Sally. Scott she's and a, Sally. Scott and Sally. She, we, she's Scottish. No, she's Aussie. She's ABC, so she's... Australian-born Chinese, so father's like second-generation Chinese. Yip is the last name. When we got married, I said to her, instead of you becoming Tullock, I'll become Yip. Scott Yip, I just thought it would have been great. Well, there's a saying in Australia, we've got the Yips. Um, that's sort of like when we get a bit nervous and we can't speak, probably get the Yips. You know, yip, um, yip, yip. <laughs> yip, 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 yip. So Scott Tullock, um, of course, a very famous racehorse in Australia and, and winery. Um, Tullock, obviously, is a Scottish name because, you know, you're here, you're Scott from Scotland. Um I want to know, I mean, I don't want to be a business just at the moment. It's all sitting here in front of me. I've got Farmer Joe honey granola with quinoa and I've got Farmer Joe cranberry and fig baked mousse and I've got Farmer Joe paleo gluten-free granola cacao. You got me going. i got the yips. Um, <laughs> but I, I want to talk, I mean, you're not a, a spring chicken. Like You look like you might be 40 plus. 41, yeah. There we go. Not bad, eh? Yeah. Um, I, I want to know what happened in the last uh, 21 years prior to this. So what have you been doing? I came to Australia in May 27, 2001 because I left London, met Sally in London after a few jobs. I was Sally's like, your wife? Sally's my yep. wife. And I came in a one-year holiday visa. So we had known each other maybe six months, five, six months. And I came here and had no ambition. I had an ambition not to go back to, to Scotland and then were you running away from Scotland or that you fell no, in love with Australia? I, kind of, I ran away from Scotland as soon as I could because I couldn't live in my life any longer. It just, it was dark. Not dark in a bad sense because it's very typical for Glasgow to be dark. Dark is part of the culture. But I just, I was curious. I had been exposed to interest in people in previous jobs. I used to be a caddy, I used to clean the golf shoes, drive cars, whatever. But I met some of the richest and wealthiest people I've seen from television. So to be exposed to that from as a young kid from Glasgow... My mind got curious. I thought there needs to be more than just my scheme, what, what's around me. So when I got the chance to leave, I went straight to London, told myself I'm becoming an actor, and um, I became an actor overnight. Are you, you josh me. Yeah, true. Because I, I believe you can be what you want to be, but you've got to start from that moment. That's kind of how I've always believed. You don't have to 
get too stuck in the detail of it. Don't think it. Don't, don't, yeah, don't overthink, don't overthink it. it. Just just do it. So I went and got a little headshot. Called up every casting agent in London, sent around headshots. No one ever asked me, "Have I acted?" No one ever. I just made shit up in a fucking resume. Just pulled shit out. Just, and they never said. They said, "Here's that line. Stand over there. Say that." And that's kind of what I did. And slowly, slowly got a few gigs. But then I also got a job uh, in a nightclub called Home Nightclub. Yeah, I know that. In place. London. Yeah. And um, turned out they were a Scottish company. And um, they gave they took a liking to me. So they gave me a job. I ended up running the security for the members' bars, which was great for me because that was all producers, directors, actors. And then I always turned up to what with a headshot. Everyone wanted membership. I could give them membership. Leverage. Ah, oh, total, absolute leverage. Um, but And I, I got a few gigs like that. But then that company went broke, uh, bankrupt. Bad stuff happened, and then I came to Australia, and I came to Australia with this same vision. I thought I thought Sydney was going to be as big uh, as London was, like for acting and clubs and da 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 da. And I was a bit disappointed when I got here because I used to say to Sally, she was always telling me Victoria Street's packed, Victoria Street's pumping in this in Darlinghurst. I said, take me to where the people are because I need to see people. So we went there, and she went, "There's nobody here." <laughs> There's nobody here. She went, this street used to be thriving when I was... This is pre-post-lockout laws. Yeah, yeah. But this is like, this is daytime, like 2001. Just, it took me a long time to assimilate to the speed of Australia. But at the same time, I came here with a chip on my shoulder. I came here with the wrong attitude. And it, that chip slowly got chipped off me by the Aussies. It took a couple of years. And then I started to fit in when I got a proper job. I got a proper job with a guy called Ben May, who owned the Light Brigade Hotel. And at that time, he was setting up the Manly Wharf Hotel. And back then there was no real emails, it was facts. I used to read the, I think it was the Morning Herald, every Tuesday you would get the hospitality jobs. And one popped up that said, sales and marketing manager required for Eastern Suburbs Pub. And I thought, fuck, I've got to get this job because I was desperate. I had been making for catcher sandwiches and just, just shit I didn't want to do. How old were you then? Uh, 23. Yeah. 23. And um, we didn't have any money. I had, my, my budget was like $5 a day and that was to go to Harry's Cafe de Wheels for the tiger. You get the tiger pie with it. That, that was my food for the whole day. That's all I had. And um, I managed to get 10 bucks off Sally because she was working part-time. And I went to the local convenience store at Five Ways. I said, mate, you've got to send this resume. I had it on one sheet. I said, how many times can you send that for a tenner? He goes, like, 10 cents a sheet. I said, send me 10 bucks worth to that fax number. He says, why? I said, mate, I want to make sure that fax machine's got no more fucking paper left. I want it to <laughs> only be my resume there. When, so all he's got is bucking me and nobody else. Anyway, Monday morning, I got a phone call. The guy comes up. You're lucky you didn't get 50 phone calls from the same bomb. <laughs> he says, mate, how many fucking resumes did you send? He goes, 10 bucks worth. I goes, mate, I want this job. I can do this job. He's going to give me this job. And based on just me, just look, doing something a wee bit different, he gave me the chance. And that was my first real Aussie thing I did. Because I'd done a few things, look, but it's still very British, like hanging up with the Brits, doing beach parties, mobile home, and all the, all the dance party stuff here, like 2000, 2001. But he was the one that gave me a proper job to say, mate, you're going to work in the Light Brigade, a real proper Eastern Suburbs pub, yep. sorry. He says, and I'm going to teach you a little bit about the private school, the prep schools. He goes, I'm a Cranbrook boy. I'll tell you how the Joey's boys works and I'll tell you how the system works. And I worked with him for a year and a half. It was really good because it helped me just slow a bit and try and fit in. Instead of trying to change my own tools and get nowhere, I became a cog in the wheel and just slotted in and found a job. And then when I started working with him, got involved with the Manly Wharf Hotel, and then got back more involved with um, more pubs. I've done that for a year and a half. Went to work for McHugh Holdings. You know Bruce McHugh? Yeah, yeah. Bruce, Bruce's son David. He had the Kinsella's, the Colombian. And he wanted to kind of rejig um, Oxford Street. So he got me involved to like, do uh, a festival. So we kind of closed down Taylor Square for uh, Forbes Street and done like a street party. That's when Middle Bar was still quite a cool bar. We put a Middle Bar Street. We'd done drag, uh, drag show down the middle of the, the, the toilet block. Uh, done that for a year done more and more events pub stuff but I was always looking for more and then that kind of died on its ass and um, I was a bit of a loose end I was maybe 24 and um, I was living above a coffee shop in Boundary Street in Paddington it was called Di Lorenzo Cafe it's now a coffee brand and this was an Italian family and um, they liked me I liked them they used to always think I was sick because I never drank coffee I always drank tea and they would say oh, what's wrong I said nothing's wrong they said well, in Italy we only drink tea if we're sick I said, well, I must be fucking sick of it. I just want tea. But this slowly got me involved with the coffee scene. And then one day he says to me, he goes, help me build a tea, a tea company. I went, all right. So we started, went to Melbourne, met some tea brokers, tried to create this little tea brand to go with his um, coffee company. And I said, you know what, there's no money in this. I said, let me sell coffee. He goes, no, he said, no one is ever going to buy coffee from a Scottish. And I said, fucking bullshit. 
I said, when I walk in that shop, the last thing that guy's going to expect me to sell him is coffee. After he's laughed and took the piss out of me, I'm going to sell him something because there's no boundaries here for the sale. And then when he gave me the chance, he said, come with me, just listen and repeat. And that's all I did. I started listening and repeating everything he said and started selling De Lorenzo coffee. Wait, can you just tell me something? What the fuck is it with people who come from Glasgow? They can do anything. Is it because you um, grow up in a sort of a competitive environment? I mean, how, how, how is it you're sort of so... And a bulletproof or whatever the hell is. What I know what the word is. Is everyone from Glasgow like that? Like, um, There's a lot of lazy bastards in Glasgow. The, yeah. the, the, the dough keeps a lot of people kept. But most people in Glasgow will have a crack. And that's kind of what I did in life. And many people I know, some succeed, some don't. We just, there is no alternative. The alternative is what you've already got. So let's Is it because it's so shit? Yeah. It, 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 but you're used to it being shit. I have Australian audience here. So like... I think you need to give us some perspective here. Like, you know, explain to me what it's like. What What is it like to live in Glasgow? I mean, obviously you wanted to get the fuck out of there, but what is it like to live there? Like um, in terms of career opportunities, you know, like... Uh, I, I would say Glasgow is like any city. So it's, the, the Glasgow today is very different to the Glasgow I lived in like 30, 40 years ago. I mean, what was it like then, though? But it's hard, just a hard city. So we were in gangs, so you're fighting every day. Everyone, fighting's part of the part of the gig. Knife crime is a big. So I never ever left home without a knife. It's just it's just something you always did. You mm. just did not do it. And um, life was hard, but everyone was kind of equal. We all had close to nothing, so there was very a level of equality. There was a posh side of Glasgow. There was the upper, the upper 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 side of Glasgow, and that did exist in places not where I where I grew up. So there's a very different private schooling, etc. But the Glasgow I had was people just got by, but not very much, and it was very much an open door policy. Like I lived in a place which was called a black spot. So it was high drugs, high crime, high unemployment. But we we never really locked our doors. You knew the crims. The crims knew you or you were the crims. Everyone, there was a, there was a balance. And <laughs> I, I would say it's the same as any place, whether it's like Mount Drew or out to some of the worst areas of Sydney. There's a system yeah. that, that sits in and keeps people in a level of control. And um, there's other parts. So when you live in a scheme in Glasgow, you know there's a better side because everyone goes to the city. Everyone goes to the city. So you start to see this other part of your life. And then you go back to the scheme. And no one goes to the schemes. The schemes are like shitholes. Have you ever seen that TV show, Aussie one called Getting Square? Nah. It's dynamic. I told us, as good as a castle. But it's kind of like that, where drugs play a big part of society. But so does hardship. And people are so familiar with hardship, so you build this level of resilience. Yeah. Resilience is just inbred. It's just there. Because when you actually, when I tell people some of the stuff we did as a kid or what we went through, we were all right. We weren't poor, poor. We were kind of upper class, poor. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We had a caravan. Let's put it that way. With a caravan, you stick on the back of the car, and we could get away for a wee holiday. But resilience is part of what people's hardship is part of the ingrained Glasgow folk love a struggle. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. it's, it's it's nearly it's nearly a condition precedent. It, it, that struggle thing is nearly something you got to put yeah. up with. My my mum ingrained that into me yeah. with her Irish background. Like it's the Irish is the same. Like it's you got same to, people. It, don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs> and uh, but that does build a certain resilience yeah. in you. It's a bit like that Aussie phrase when they say pull your head in. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a reminder to fucking back up. Yeah, just, yeah. Just remember who you are and where you are. And that's an important factor. I mean, I think in terms of um, forming who you are, who 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 Scott is. I mean, it, it does help at the end of the day in terms of your business because it makes everything fucking easy. Because you just you're just telling us about how, you know, you know, you thought oh, I'm going to set up a tea brand. I go, I can go and sell coffee. I, go, I mean, I'll put my name in there for the library guy because I reckon I can do the job. You know, blah blah blah. And people are going to say, well, where's the fuck? Where's he get all this front from? You know, I mean, in the Irish, should say he's got so much neck. You know, like uh, where does the hell does he get it? Well, it's not because you're arrogant or you think you're better than everybody else. It's because it's just what you fucking do. Just having a crack. Yeah, you got to do it because otherwise you're not going to go anywhere. My wife used to laugh at me because during that period, I would apply, I would read that paper. So I would obviously. My roles were at the back in the small print, but I would apply, I applied for the CEO of Coca Cola. I read that line and I went, I fucking drink Coke. I'm, I'm not right. So I applied and I was so disappointed. Is there some little bit of ignorance building there too? I, blind naivety. Yeah, yeah. I was just naive. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I but it read, works, it yeah. helps. Well, she used, to, she used to laugh and she tells these stories now. It's like, I, I've written a book and it's coming, it's called The Accidental Guru. Because I, I went through a whole period of change in my life. I went to study psychology, I wanted to understand the darkness in my mind. And I want you to understand why that's there. No, I need to understand that. What do you mean the darkness in your mind? Because you, uh, you said Glasgow is a dark place. I mean, what, what do you mean the darkness in your but, mind? But Australia changed my way of thinking. So I'm, I, I am two people. There's a little Glasgow guy who's like 16 up to 18 years old. But now there's this kind of middle-aged, moderate-thinking Aussie. Because I am I, I call myself Scozzy. 
because look, Aussies Scottish. don't take me as Aussie and Scottish don't take me as Scottish so I've got to find I found this no man's land so I've got this angry little Scottish guy and this kind of moderate Australian influence guy who's a bit more respectful of, of people's cultures or whatever it's making these two become together so if, if a wee Glasgow guy gets really angry I can get really angry anxious sometimes you can get depressed I used to get depressed when it gets dark all the time you might find that weird because Glasgow was always dark but when I came to Australia, there was so much light in my life. Like light, like lightened up my yeah, yeah. my moods. It's a big deal, you. Hundred percent. You don't realise how fortunate you are to have so much light. Yeah, and so, it's a beautiful light too. Yeah. It, it, there is something very special about light in Australia. We have we have so much in this country, so I had to build a level of appreciation for the things that were free around me, that sort of stuff. Instead of during that kind of early twenties, it was I was quite selfish. Try to get me, 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 me. Going through that process, washing out because I'm not that guy. I'm, uh, I left the life I had behind because I wasn't that. I had what I can now talk about as a conscience. So whenever I did something I found to be disrespectful for someone, that played on me. So I wanted to address those things in my my outward life. How do I not do that to upset someone? Because I don't, I don't mean it. I like people. I like to talk. I like to have a laugh. I like to have a joke. I'm that guy. I want to be someone's friend. I've never an enemy. So if I've ever said someone disrespectful, I kind of got this conscience. But I never had a conscience in Glasgow. Well, I wouldn't have had the same conscious level in Glasgow that I had in Australia. In Glasgow, you just get on with it. You never really question what you did. It's just, that's it. That's a cycle. It's like a treadmill. It's, it's funny, you know, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of sensing um, a great deal of resilience, in other words. And I don't mean you're a tough guy or anything. What I mean by that is um, due, to, due to where you just grew up and ha- just what the culture was, you have to be resilient. Otherwise, you're not going to fucking make it. And it's not something, it's something that's sort of like just part of your DNA. You just, that's it, you know, like, if, otherwise, if you sort of sit around whinging and complaining and sort of, you know, feeling meek and timid and mild and probably less um, well-mannered, like, like Aussies tend to be a little bit well-mannered, um, you're going to get run out of the top. But you brought that sort of resilience into our environment. And to be honest with you, like I, I see a lot of South African people in the same situation. My old man coming here from Greece, a lot of people come to this country, they think, this is pretty fucking easy because uh, everyone here gives you uh, gives you a chance. And if you if you bring in that sort of resilience into our environment and have a crack at a few things, you can do well. Hundred percent. And then I think anyone who's listening to this, yeah. you don't realise how we don't realise how fucking lucky we are in this country because you can basically, if if you've got a reasonably good idea, and you've got a fair bit of energy, and you've got a little bit of money behind you, a little bit, not much, and or you've got people who will back you. You can actually create a new business, hundred percent, and 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 that's that's you. I mean, you survived if what do you say five dollars a day, mm. and your wife gave you you know ten bucks or whatever it was. If you said that today to a, a nineteen-year-old kid who just left school, he'd fucking shit himself. They 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 spend more than that on their mobile phone calls mm. or texts or WhatsApp or whatever it is they're doing. Um, just use of data. Um, for me, they don't, I, I think it's really important that we understand how fucking lucky we are in mm. this country. I mean, and it's coming from you. And we get too much. We have a we have a we have a stand with your hand out society, because I think we're very much a middle. This is Australia. Level of expectation. About, yeah, we're very much a middle class society where we expect too much, and we're always striving for more. Never actually standing to use a word here, Scottish. Take heed, which is take take knowledge of what we actually have. If we actually stand and look at the life we have in Australia, that doesn't cost you anything just by being born here. We're lucky bastards. Yeah. Everything that you take for granted was potentially maybe one week in my life, like to go to a beach to get the fucking sun shining. Yeah, yeah. You wake up every day and it's there. You can go to the beach. You can you yeah. can be on the dole here. It'd be the best country in the world to, live, be, on the to be on the dole. Yeah, totally. Fuck me. You get 24 hours. You got all your time back. The only commodity we all have is 24 hours. And the beach is free. And the beach is free. And it's down the road. And you probably get a free bus to yeah. get you home. Yeah, totally. It's a fucking... Yeah, so, whereas where yeah. if you're in Scotland or Ireland or somewhere like that, you have to, you have to fly to Spain or something. Um, yeah. And you're not going to get... it's costly. And it's very expensive. Yeah. You only do it one time yeah. a year, one part of the year. Here we can go to the beach anytime, anytime, yeah. pretty much. And it's, it's interesting that you just we're bringing it back to um, probably one of the most important things is um, being great, grateful, and, and showing gratitude. We I don't mean you've got to actually say it, but really important when we're in business is we've got to be grateful. And we've got to show gratitude to what we have, and it changes our whole personality, and it makes you better at what you do. Makes you a better salesperson. So you're walking in there, you know, we just went through part of your career, but you're walking around. People are wondering, well, this place just sent me 50 um, faxes of, of his resume and probably some of us probably think this guy is mental 
Um, and that's the reason he probably got the job. The, the guy probably recognised, the guy from the Light Brigade probably recognised is that uh, this Scottish bloke will actually go out and work for me. He'll, he'll be able to do the role. And the reason you can do all that is because you're actually grateful to what you're, what you're experiencing. You're thinking, I can do this, mm. no problem. Give me a crack. Mm. Whereas a lot of other people who would have been applying for it would, would have uh, walked in there all soapy and, you know, sort of sitting there, probably not much energy, et cetera. That's what gets you the yeah. role. That's what gets you on in business generally. Take me to, you know, your, when did you start this business? When Farmer Joe, honey. Uh, ten, uh, 10 years ago. Okay, so 41. Take me back to what happened around 29 to 31. 29 to 31, my life changed. My life was kind of a big bubble of niceness until the guy who gave me the job in the coffee turned up at my house one day and told me his son's got brain cancer. Wow. Fucking, my life was, I'd only ever heard these things in the radio, like one in three, I thought that's never going to fucking happen to anyone I know. Young kid, lovely guy, didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't do drugs. Perfect human being. That's what made me think there can't be a God. I started to really question religion and whatever. So if, if someone who's so decent, such a nice, beautiful fucking pair, how can this happen to him? So that, that was the thing when I, the darkness switched on in my mind because in my mind there was resilience there, but I started to have this, is it me? All these other things started to play in my mind. So I went to go and study psychology. I didn't stand, I didn't go to a doctor and say, give me a pill. I don't fucking, I don't agree with that. I read something a long time ago, it said Albert Einstein said, people are about as happy as they make up their mind to be. And I really believe that. I really believe we've got to take ownership of mind and body and really make a difference to ourselves and the world. But I went through that process of change um, at that period, I then lost your son. So we had a son. So we had a, a, a boy. He had, was, my wife was diagnosed with 19 weeks. He had, when the lungs unfold, it was a, called a, a CCAM. It's a cystic abnormality. It's a big fucking word. Basically, the lungs are cystic and don't become tissue. So at 19 weeks, she had to carry him through till she was 28 weeks when he was born, knowing that he only had 1% survival chance. We lived in the ICU world for three months. It was fucking torture. The irony of that sort of thing at the same time was... Frank Sartre was in there as well with his kid Billy and so was Clover Moore with his daughter. I thought, this is like a fucking sketchy, isn't it? You get two opposing parties. I tried to find humour in this stuff because we had no other option. You know, you're at the end of the line so you went through, we went through this process. But that again, that's resilience. Yeah, you just, we just, my wife's very resilient at the same time but you just, you just batter on through. But why, 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 you tell me something, please. Why do you think Scott was able to pull through that and um, still maintain his position and, and, and kick on and do something else as opposed to other people, it just fucks him up forever. Well, what's the difference? Is it because of your DNA, where you grew up, or what is it? I just think, I'll give you an example. When the doctors gave that Sally the scan, and you know, that's the heart, that's the eyes, that's the stuff, all I could see was this big fucking white mass in the body. I said, what is that? She said, I don't know. When she said that, my penis disappeared in my body. I've never felt that in my life. My heart stopped and I started dripping sweat instantly. I'd never felt that level of anxiety in my life. She left the room, the doctor came in and he says, I always, when, I, when I walked in there, my, my eye saw this other room. It had soft furnishings and napkins in it. Like, and he goes, do you want to come? I said, mate, don't, I don't need to go there. I don't need soft furnishings in my life for fucking bad news. Just tell me it right here. And I think that's, I don't need to create, that's just, I just need to deal with it there. And then, I don't need that to deal with bad news. I can deal with it in my day to day and I would just get on with it. We would just get on with it. And I just, I don't know. My mother was a very resilient woman. She brought up four, she also lost five kids. Four, I've got four siblings. She was resilient. She just got on with it, man. Just fucking don't win, jump in, just get on with it. And I don't like that kind of victim attitude. It's, it's always, I don't deal with that at all. I don't like it when I feel it coming out of me. If I can get rid of it. I don't like it in my children. My wife is not that person either. She's very much... Um, she's less vocal than me, but she's just a fucking steam train. You know, it's just like, she just deals with her stuff her own way. And we never ask for help because I really believe we've got to help ourselves. I mean, it's nice to talk and I, I know that my mindset is different to many other people's. I know that because I talk to a lot of people, but I'm always there to offer them <clears throat> a shoulder to cry on or somebody to talk to because, and I'm very open with them on what I went through. I went through a lot of change, mental change, and people don't like to talk about mental health but for me, it's not mental health. It's a way of life. It's like, if you want to be better within your life, then you've got to change that part of it. Once you get control of this, it's like a, obviously everyone's just watched the Melbourne Cup. So those horses are controlled by reins. If you can put your mind in a rein and get control of it and you're holding the reins, you're going to live a much more functional life. You're in control of it. Because if you let any part of those emotions get out of kilter, 
you're going to go to a place you don't want to be. My resilience come from experience or curiosity to, to why. I always ask why. Why are you successful? Why did you do it? How did you start? What did you? I'm, I'm really curious to ask people why. I never realised that I controlled my mind until I was 28 years old. I never knew that. And I thought, why did I not? Why was I not taught that at school? So, what would you say to all the people listening to this who are thinking of themselves, or should I, should I not start the business up? I think you should really do questioning themselves. What do you say? Yeah, to just I always question myself, but it never ever stopped me from doing what I wanted to do because I, I never felt satisfied being in a job. I was only ever satisfied by creating something. I love that challenge, the grind. Mm. I love that kind of bit of the the hardship. I like the hardship because that's, that's the guys are coming out. The hardship drives. But what you've, ta- you've taken that whole, you know, that you've taken that whole thing about embracing hardship, mm. which is what Scottish and a lot of the lot of the United Kingdom and and uh, Irish people do. Um, you know, they they actually embrace. Mm. They they think it's, ne- it's a necessary part of their life. Hardship. Yeah. Um, what you're doing here is you're saying, okay, I'm not going to make that grind me down. I'm going to take that ability to um, to work through those processes and make sure, make it. U- I'm going to use it in my business. Yeah. Is, is that sort yeah. of like you've you've turned it around a little bit? But you've take that's a that, that's a fucking tremendously important asset, particularly if you marry that with being gratitude, having gratitude and being grateful for what you got. If you have that ability to push through tough times and actually embrace it, say no, this is what it's all about. This is what, I'm doing this, and then on the, on top of that, not have the the chip on your shoulder, mm. and and have gratitude yeah. for everything. I want everybody who's listening to this just to fucking write this down. There's an important factor in running a business. Embrace the hardship. Work with it. Use it to your advantage. But also live a life of being grateful and have lots of gratitude. Don't let that grind, that sort of process of thinking I'm hard done by here and I'm, I'm, I'm in this environment where I can't get out. Don't let that become the monkey on your fucking back. Turn it around. Take advantage of it. Use that to build your drive. And that's what Scott is talking about. Like, for fuck's sake, this bloke, he's come from an environment where he could have every fucking excuse in the world and he could have a chip on his shoulder. But he hasn't. He's turned around himself. Scott's done that. And I, and I think that's what I really want to come out of our podcast is that inspiration. That's why I want people like Scott to come into the show because it's really important for people to understand the sorts of elements that create businesses. And that's one. So I'm back from the break. I'm here with Scott. Now, Scott's got a business called Farmer Joe, and uh, look, i got his product in front of me. It looks like um, breakfast-style products. Yeah? Yeah, or cereals, muesli. And he makes you know. it. You make it up in Byron Bay? Yeah. Yeah, my favourite place in the world. Uh, and by the way, he's just around the corner from me. He's just uh, up there in St. Helena Road. Or besties. Yeah, besties. Um <laughs> Mind you, I've never met him before. Mind you, I don't know anyone up there. I mean, I met a couple. I know a couple of people up there only because I knew him in Sydney before they went up there. I very rarely go up there, but it turns out he's just around the corner from me. In fact, he's he's probably just above me. Um, and what's interesting about this, Scott, is that the Brook Farm people, just about a hundred meters away yep. from you, two hundred meters away from you, and they've done a good job. They built a good business, from mm. what I can see. You know, they've managed to get on to Virgin flights, etc. They're twenty-five year old. 20, yeah, I was going to say they've been around a long time yeah, yeah. though, and it's interesting. I've seen how their product has um, evolved, how it's gone from being, um, uh, you know, the old school muesli. Now it's uh, gluten-free. Blah blah. They got they got a whole variety of things. What was it that inspired you to get into? Can I call it breakfast cereal? Or cereal business? Yeah. Is that what we're yeah. talking about? Yeah. Cereal business? Uh, what what inspired you to do this? I mean, what, what, do you say, look, there's shit product everywhere. I've got to put something out there because I, I want my own meal. Yeah, so I was driven by that. So I grew up in porridge my entire life. So we ate salty porridge. It was just oats and salt. Yeah. That was it. Yeah, I used uh, to eat that. Yeah, Sally was my wife. She was muesli, call it, call it granola or whatever. But we were always eating. We always felt muesli was either two things. It was either quite boring, quite safe and healthy, but not yeah. a lot of taste, or very sweet. And on the opposite end, at that time, I was running a coffee company called Toby's Estate. So I said to Sally, you know, if we can make muesli as exciting as brands like Were you Toby- Byron then? Were you- no, I was, I, I was lived in Surrey Hills for 16 yep. years. Yep. And um, I said, if we can do to muesli what the coffee brands are doing to coffee, coffee's no longer just a, a coffee. It's, it's an experience, it's a lifestyle, there's tasting notes, there's all these wonderful things that go with it. It's craft. Yeah, it's crafted. Mm. Art, I think the Americans call it artesian. Mm. Artesian. Artisan. Artisan, yeah. <laughs> 
And um, I said, if we can do that with muesli, I believe we can do something special in that space. Because so craft muesli. Craft it. Yeah. But bake it the same way, the guys. But So when you go and look, drink a lavazza, it's just coffee. It's just a flavour. But if you go and drink like a little marionette coffee or a single origin or a Toby's, you're getting a multi-level profile. It's like drinking a nice wine. You start to get the detail of the stuff. We wanted the same with coffee. It was with muesli. So every ingredient, we were baking them individually. So most people's version of muesli is you get a bunch of ingredients, mix it together, bake it, there you go, done. That's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to actually get the best out of the ingredient before we add anything to it. So we would bake everything individually and then we would add a bit of oil or a bit of um, honey to, to add the sweetness to create the product. And it was called Origin Bake, small batch Origin Bake. So when we took that to the cafes, we were speaking the language because that's the way they were sold coffee, which is 80% of the business. So no one actually went to the cafes and sold muesli the way it was sold. So you remarketed, coffee. repackaged yeah, the marketing. Yeah, yeah. And muesli was always an afterthought. Back then it was all burgers and refined breads, this and all that sort of stuff. No one was actually selling muesli with purpose. This is before the fucking acai bowls and all that sort of stuff. We were part of that movement. But going back 10 years, it was going back to cafes and helping them create. So a lot of the Greeks, one of my customers back then were Greeks, Lebanese, Italians. So their version was big pot of yogurt and muesli, on the, uh, muesli at the bottom. Mm. I made them change it. I said, put the muesli on the top because they're not buying customers, ain't buying the yogurt. So put the muesli on the top because we spend time to make it very visual. Let them see what they're getting. Let them see all these things. So they would go from two pots a week to four pots, six pots. And the margin on a little pot is 500%. When you're in a cafe, I like that. To get 300%, you've got to get a barista who's got a fucking potentially an attitude and not going to tell it wherever. So we started to educate them about how much this can actually mean to them as a business. But our first customer was um, Qantas. We've made five products and then um, we went to Fox Markets and um, Neil Perry's um, people because it was Perry Consultant. You, you just give a sip, Fox Markets, you better tell us what, what, what that what's that mean. So it's. Um, Fox Farmers Market. So it was like one of the first kind of farmers markets. The in farmers Sydney. market in Sydney, in at, Sydney. A, at a place called Fox Studios, Fox Studios yeah, yeah, yeah. which is owned by News Limited. Yeah. Ruben Murdoch owns it. Yeah. So, so, th- and this is in the uh, Centennial Park area, yeah. and people go mad there on a Saturday, Sunday. I don't know if it's during the week on Wednesday. Wednesday is yeah. it? So, you, you, and you go there and you buy um, sort of, um, you know, organic vegetables yeah. and direct meats. From the and, yeah. Yeah. yeah, direct yeah. from the farmer yeah. foods, whether it's meat, eggs, muesli, in your case. Fruit, veg, flowers. Did so you have a stall there? Yeah, we had a little stall. It's a great little place. And to that's visit. kind of how we started. It was just take a chance because we again, it's like that. Do we stand on the sideline and try and figure out how the fuck we're going to do this, or do we just do it? So Sally went up with a nice little gift pack to the people who run the markets and said, "This is what we make. This, that's lovely." Start on a Wednesday, so she went there and dressed the table, made it all nice, and we ended up selling everything. So we started with five flavors, and um, they all sold. But on that. Last part of that day, Perry Consultant guys were coming through and said, "Can you?" And when you say Perry, you're talking about Neil Perry, who's Qantas. yeah, yeah. So the audience, Neil Perry is the um, gastronomic uh, consultant to Qantas. In other yeah. words, he 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 builds the menu up for what Qantas sells on their plane or, yeah. and or puts in their business lounges, etc. Yeah. So, and he's quite a famous uh, chef in Australia. Neil Perry is mm. okay. So. Tell, tell me what happened with Neil Perry's guys. They, they liked the idea and they said, could you supply us some muesli? Because they liked the way the product looked. It wasn't like a standard You mean in the, in the bag or, or you mean looked? Out, out in the product. Yeah, yeah. I said, it's very detailed. People are going to see the difference in this product. And that's what they liked about it because that's what we wanted. People eat with their eyes. We wanted to make it very visual. Because mm. so, sometimes you get a great picture on the front, but it's fucking shit inside. Mm. So we wanted to do the opposite, make it really good and focus on the ingredients. And... Um, let people have that eating experience, but lots of flavours. So, um, so they sent, well, at that time we had a little tiny kitchen in Surrey Hills. It was 35 square metres. We had a little cafe at the front and baking the muesli at the back. And we would put, hand the muesli at the windows to people sitting, coming at the pub. And we had like EMI and Colette Dinigan on that street. So we had a lot of famous people. We had good Charlotte guys would come down for a pot of muesli when they were filming that um, TV show, the, the music one. can't remember what it was called. But they'd be sitting eating pots of muesli and paparazzi would be coming taking little pictures. But we were just a tiny little hole in the wall. We sell muesli by box at the back door and sell by a cup and a pot at the front door. And that's kind of how we started. So, Was it called Farmer Joe then? Farmer Joe, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just opposite the Cricketers Arms Hotel in Surrey Hills. So if you go to the cricket, you would have walked past it many, many times up to the stadium. And um, we started, that, that's kind of, they put us on first class and business class. Uh, and then slowly we started out with that. We picked up some wholesale accounts from that same markets again, and um, it's, that's how kind of 
we kept going back to the market, kept going with the product. Customers would say, there's too many almonds or there's too much figure, there's too much. And I always say, listen to the customers because... How do you get that feedback? I mean, when you say they... Just by t- being there. <clears throat> just by being there. So you, mean, you mean in your hole in the wall? Or? No, at the markets. At the markets. At the farmer's yeah. markets, yeah, yeah. Because farmer's markets is good for us because that was our market research. Yeah. These are real customers spending real money. It's a real market. And they're not friends. And it's a real market. Yeah, it's a real market. It's just that... Because if you ask your friends, all your friends are oh, going to blow smoke, smoke up your ass. Totally, Forget it. Totally, totally, totally. not your customer. Yeah. So that they're was the cheer squad. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it, they're probably never ever going to buy your product either. But they're good for a bit of moral support. You know, they kind of yeah, spruce yeah. you up when you're down a little bit. But going to the farmer's market was real life stuff. People will say, oh, and they would say the figs are too big, which is great because we can make them less, save a bit of margin. The almonds will do this. And at that time, we had a plastic tub in a brown bag. The idea was this plastic tub was to keep it thingy, uh, airtight. And the, green, the brown bag was to refill it. But when we started selling both of them, customers didn't want to touch the plastic tub. They wanted the little bag. Got rid of that. It was a $20,000 waste of fucking money that we never, ever recouped. Again, naivety in business. But you've got to try it to, to make these things. So we started selling this little simple bag. And people loved it. And then from that, we got another market, which is Everly Markets at the Carriage Works in Redfern. Same sort of farmer's market. And we're still there to this day, that one. But then by that small exposure... And um, you meet customers who would then go back and tell the local cafe, oh, you should try this new. And that's kind of how it started for us. We created like a little brand ambassadors, which were real customers who would go back to their communities and tell the cafe or the, the retailer. And that's kind of how we built the business slowly, slowly, slowly. So how do you distribute it today? I mean, like, do Everything, you have like, salespeople? So we have one head of sales early, and, um, and then we have 12 distributors uh, nationally, and then we have seven export markets that we that we manage and then work where it's a key account so like a Costco or a Woolies or a Coles or or large Do you, do you supply co- Woolies yeah. and Coles? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We supply them direct direct to store sort of thing. We do but we have about four and a half thousand outlets now in Australia. That's a cross between all your cool trendy cafes and lots of retail. Eighty percent retail now and twenty percent cafes when it used to be the opposite because I was very focused on cafes but When you, you say retail th- th- through uh, distribution point, though. yeah, yeah, like through Coles, Woolworths, yeah. or IGAs, Fundies, so, yeah, Healthy yeah. Life, all your all your retail yeah. stores, and we kind of built that on the success of having a good product. <clears throat> we had no money on marketing. We, um, we had no money to. We started it on the smell of an oily rag. We say just getting by, bit of cash, sell it for this, and buy stuff tomorrow. And um, we we do that now as a business and still do that, but we still use the farmers markets and we still have. Your cafes, your key cafes, where we still get involved with them to see where the trends are going, what's happening. If I was just looking at this uh, honey granola one with quinoa, 10 years ago you didn't have the quinoa. I mean, quinoa, I don't know if you did, but quinoa has sort of become a new product. Not a new product, but it's sort of become a bit more involved in um, in these sorts of things. Um, where did you, how has it evolved in terms of where you started and how much has the market research influenced what you produce today? What we do and I always say this to people, we eat product that we want to eat. So many brands will fill gaps on niches. We don't do that as a business. We never have. We just make stuff that we want to eat. So we, we have an interest in food, and we'll do our own research, and we'll think about stuff, we'll play with stuff. And then that's kind of how it evolves for us. Quinoa had its moment maybe six, seven years ago, when it was, but, but then it became a bit of an epidemic because the cause and effect action, you're taking all the quinoa from these Peruvian guys who live on quinoa who are now forced to eat McDonald's because there's no fucking quinoa. So although we want to do the best in our world, there's a, there's a negative impact to their world. So we kind of try and take on board all these things. Can we can we source stuff locally here? And what can we get? And what's can you get KMI locally? You, I think there's a little guy in Tasmania, right? Grew, but not 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 a lot of it. Not the amount you no, need. No. So we always focus on flavour and nutrition. So, but for us, it's about functional eating. So it's about you getting, when you eat a bowl of farm with your muesli, we've actually sat down <clears throat> and thought through the process of your eating experience, but then your combination of food for the nutrition. What's your gut going to take in and what you're going to process? And that's kind of how we, we, we build we build up brands. That wasn't how we started. We started with just taste. But as we have grown and got more involved and listened to our customers, we've had to re-educate and continually educate ourselves. Because the market's become more complex. Too. 100%. I mean, yep. consumers have become more yep. complex in terms of what they demand. Like, I'm just looking at this one here. It says, uh, Farmer Joe Paleo, gluten-free granola with cacao, mm. uh, no refined sugars, grain-free, dairy-free, gluten-free, 
and it says, you know, it's got all the good stuff here. Want me, eat me, love me, Byron Bay, but just all, 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 the, all, the, all the trick words, which is great. It's got rainbows uh, coming out the bag when you open t- it. Totally, <laughs> totally, hundred <laughs> percent. And uh, and it's a great photograph. I mean, the packaging is very good. I have to tell you, That's I, my wife. I, I mean, I, I really do like the packaging, especially the way you advertise on the front. It's very good. Um, you're doing you're doing eighty percent of your revenues today. You're saying is coming out of. Selling these things here, yeah. this this package of packet of um, paleo gluten free granola with cacao, is that right? Mm. And then the rest of it's sort of wholesaling to shops, yes, yeah, so to restaurants bo- and cafes, folks, cafes, yeah. And what about uh, and how important was being discovered by the Qantas guys or Neil Perry's team? I don't. I wouldn't say as a business for us, it got us. But at the time, at the time, oh, it was good because I told everyone, and it, it gave us confidence, purely because we had respect for. Neil Perry, because he's the big restaurateur guy, and definitely have respect for Qantas. Big brands, I thought, how big brand actually even talking to us? Fucking hell. Yeah, it gives you a bit of energy. Yeah, it gave us, we did it, supplied them for three years before we realised we weren't making any money out of it. Hmm. But the, um, it gave, good branding though. Yeah, good branding, and during that process we also started with Virgin as well, so we started doing Virgin business as well, through Luke Mangan, those guys. So it gave us real confidence that big guys that know their shit are actually valuing something that was an idea at a kitchen table between me and Sally. So, and there's, we're not the only muesli brand out there, there's, there's many. But we actually, they've actually taken us on board for what we try to do, make something very visually appealing. Can you buy it online, Scott? Is yeah. It, yeah, so um, your your online sales, where is that relative to where? Tiny, Tiny small. Small. But five grand a month. Okay. So if I put it in bags, like we sell through retail 45,000 bags a month, like this, and we would sell maybe... 200 bags a month online. Why is that? I don't know. I've employed a head of marketing, just started now, so we've actually 10 years down the line, we've got a bit of money. So we've employed a head of marketing to look at that part of the business and think, do people buy muesli online? Let's ask that question. If they do, why are we not selling I more? would, because yeah. I can't be fucked going over yeah. wars of coals. And I would, I would say to my, hey, hey, listen, get me some of this online. Just And once if I like it, I just keep buying it online. There's many companies that do sell it online, but other companies, so you might go to their website and buy... 20 other things and plus us whereas we haven't really found that niche where people would come to farmers or just to buy a bag of muesli it does happen but it doesn't happen as often in maybe because they're not thinking about farmer joe maybe not thinking when they when they run out when they're doing the muesli they're not probably not probably not thinking farmer joe maybe the brand farmer joe is not well known enough yet when we um do the analytics pretty much everyone that comes to us sets for farmer joe so that's probably the thing we, we put this little thing on the back of our bag that says Buy online, Farmer Joe. And we thought, oh, people will find it. Doesn't happen. Well, think, do you think people read the bag, though? Oh, 100%. Your customer? Yeah. They go straight to the bag, straight do, to the ingredients. Wherever it, wherever it says, buy a Farmer Joe. No, I don't online. think they, they go straight to the ingredients. Part yeah, of it. I definitely the ingredients. That's where they go. But what about the, the, the last? Because where it says www.farmerjoe.com.au. Yeah. Join us on Instagram, that sort of it, stuff. It, yeah. It doesn't. Yeah. So what we're looking at is, can we, what we're doing is we're launching a whole lot more products. So we're innovating and we're launching granola spreads. So, like, think of nut butter and, and Nutella. We're launching a breakfast spread. So a lot of people don't want to have a bowl of muesli. How do we capture that on-the-go market? Yeah, it takes a long time to eat it. Yeah, straight on your bread and away yeah. you go. And there's one that's seed-based, so you can send it to the kids with school because there's no nuts in it. We're launching the raw balls, granola balls, something you can just snack on, 45-gram, 25-gram little snacks. And then we've got dunkers. Think of, like, a, a Tim Tam, but like a, a, a breakfast-based biscuit you dunk and you eat it, and it's pumped with nut butter as well. And, and, and there's a big thing... Sometimes, but for me, um, depending on what's going on in my, in my, my sporting life, um, what about uh, calories, etc.? So with the um, paleo range, yeah. that's very much on trend for their fitness and well-being. So that's paleo, it's also keto. So it's very low in carb, very high in protein, very high in fiber, and a lot of your trace minerals in there. Whereas the oat-based ones is, is works for a different customer. Either customers just like oat-based stuff, but there's a higher concentration of carbohydrate. But what we do is a whole food. So if you're looking for whole food nutrition, your product is Farmer Joe. We're not going to, we never try and play with a product to get a number. It's not what we're about. We're about portion eating. So 50 grams, like what you would eat in the hand, is enough energy from that product. If you have that with either your coconut yogurt or your milk, whatever you're going to do with it. But it's about getting back to the basis of eating controlled amounts yeah. of, of your of your product. That's 100%. Look, it's funny. I eat 30 grams of porridge every day. 30 grams. I actually weigh 30 grams of porridge every day and a couple of boiled eggs. Um, 
and to me that's that gives me enough energy to get through the day. You don't need a massive bowl of porridge. Yeah. You don't need uh, to feel full. You don't yeah. need to, yeah. no. And, and over time you do feel yeah. full because yeah. your stomach yeah. shrinks a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that, I was actually – because there is a new trend, uh, you pro- obviously know about it, but there is a trend around how many carbs I'm having in the morning but at the same time I want to have the right nutrition. I quite like – I'm going to try this um, – Farmer Joe, the paleo one, oh, I actually want to give it a crack. and It looks really good. I'm actually getting hungry sort of hanging out here today. I mean, I, I love your product. I, I really do. I mean, I think it's – I love the fact it's craft breakfast. I think that's cool. Craft, by the way, craft beer, craft coffee, they're all selling for big dollars to the big players. So, I mean, you're setting yourself up well here, I think. But what's the one question you have for me? The question I have for you is a very different one. It wasn't related to food. Go for it. It was a – I've always struggled to get my head around the banking system. So, example, as a business, I think we are pre-approved for like two million bucks finance. So tomorrow I can go and buy a packing machine for two million bucks and I'll have it paid. But if I want to buy a house for two million bucks, they want me to walk through hot coals. And I th- my, my mind can't process that because if, if I buy the packing machine, as soon as I've signed on it, it's 30% cheaper. And if I go broke, it's, it's 80% cheaper. But if I buy a house and they take two million bucks, they want me to put down 20% or pay mortgage insurance for an asset that I cannot move and in your country pretty much an appreciating asset. Why is that the well, case? Let me explain it to you. When, when a, a finance company or a bank um, is regulated by our regulatory environment, our, what they call the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, APRA, um, APRA says to the bank, when you lend money, that now becomes an asset of yours. So if I'm a bank and I lend Scott money, um, that debt is now my my asset. In other words, that's an asset for me. And so the regulator knows I lend money to Scott to buy a house and the regulator knows I lend money to someone else to, to, for their business to buy a machine. The regulator comes back to me as a lender and says, when you lend money to Scott to buy a house, you must hold a certain amount of capital against something going wrong with that loan. And it's very low for the house. When you lend money to the person over there to buy the machine, you must hold a amount of capital to that asset too, but it's much higher. So you have to hold a whole lot of capital to that, to that asset. If you want to have, and it's very important for the, me, the, the bank, to only have to hold small amounts of capital against the assets. So I'm actually going to prefer to, hold, to, to lend money to buy houses because I only have to carry a small amount of asset, uh, capital against that, that asset going bad, which means that the rate of return, the return I get on the money I give to you is much higher because the money I have to put on deposit um, to hold against that particular asset earns me very little money. So I get a very low return on that money. So it's very much in my interest to lend as much money as possible to people who want to buy houses because I have to hold less capital. And as a result of that, the regulator knows that. And as a result, of that, the regulator says, yes, but when you, in order to get this um, low allocation of capital that you've got to hold against residential property, these are all the characteristics of that loan to qualify. So the characteristics are you can't lend him any more than 85, 90%. Um, we don't want to lend him interest only. He has to have a history of uh, blah, blah, for the, uh, earning a wage, et cetera, for the last two years. Um, we don't want you lending him money that's not mortgage insured. In other words, there's no insurance against that property in case something goes wrong. We don't want you lending money if he's outside of the Sydney CBD or if he's up on the highway at Byron Bay and St. Helena Road, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, there's a big prescription of stuff that the regulator tells the bank that in order to qualify for this low capital holding against that asset that the bank has to adhere to in terms of the conditions that they will lend you the money. Whereas if it's going to a business, none of those conditions exist. So it's actually much more profitable for me to lend you money to buy a home than it is for me to lend you money to buy a business because the amount of capital I've got to hold or don't have to hold. But in order to qualify for that asset, to qualify as one of these assets, I have to hold a low amount of capital. I have to go through all these hoops with the regulator. And that's why it's really hard yep. to borrow money to buy a house relative to buying to borrowing money for a business. Mm. Relatively, mm. I'm talking about. The interest rates are different. It doesn't matter. If I, have to, if, if I lend you $100 plus I have to hold $100 against $100 I lend you just in case everything goes wrong, then the amount of – it's ridiculous. The amount, I, I don't make that much money on my return on capital. 
Whereas if I'm actually lending you hundred dollars, I only have to hold one dollar mm. against that. Where if I'm lending it to the business, I'd have to hold another another fifty to hundred dollars. Mm. So you can sort of see, and the regulator is mm. really tough on the banks today mm. about how much capital they got to hold and what you've got, what I've got to um, insist on from you, the borrower. Mm. That's the reason. It doesn't make sense, I know. It doesn't do. But it makes it, sense it, once it I explain it. That's the best explanation I've had. It's it's uh, amount of capital that the regulator makes the the bank hold against the two different yeah. classes of assets. And the, and the residential class is very low amount of capital we have to hold, which means the banks love that because they make much more money. Because mm. the way the banks get their money is they go, they go and they borrow money from the market. They mm. go and, and they, they, you know, they, they raise capital. Like Westpac just raised billions, okay, like last, last two days. But the return they have to pay the, the, sh- the people they borrow the money from, the bondholders or the shareholders, is quite high. Mm. They have to give them a good return. The money they hold... They just they just they hold it in their accounts to get really low returns. Like they're losing money on that transaction, so it's not good to hold a lot of capital. That's the bottom line. And there's my answer. There's your answer, <laughs> Scott. Th- I, I love this little business. I love the fact that it grew out of um, someone having a crack. I really like the fact that um, you've sort of called on and without probably even realizing, called on all those things that you ran away from in Glasgow. And you're, you're using them to advantage to create a product in this country. Mm. And the fact is you, you just embrace everything about Australia. And to me, to some extent, you embrace everything that small business owners in this country have as their characteristics. Um, you never say no. You're always positive. You're coming up with new products. You're taking on the big guys. You're, you, you don't give a shit. You actually say, oh, fuck it. I'm going to go and open a stall in, in the markets in um, in the city, yeah. in, in, in Sydney. And uh, if it fails, it fails. Yeah. So what? Aussies say it all the time, have a go. Have a yeah. go, mate. Yeah. And that's really what it is. It's, you've got to get off your ass and just fucking have a crack at and it. Don't, and don't whinge about it. Just yeah. do it. Yeah. And if it, if it doesn't work, you know, pit it, make it, make yeah. it work. Just make it fucking yeah. work. Scott, that was yeah. fantastic. I really Thank enjoyed you. that, mate. And I'm going to... I'll give breakfast. I'm going to do some feedback <laughs> on the, the paleo. Pardon the pun. <laughs> See you, mate. See you. Ta-da. Thank you.